Hi folks, welcome again to another episode of Pro Football in the 1970s. I'm your host, Joe Zagorski. Now, thanks to the Sports History Network, a signed copy of my new book, The 2003-Yard Odyssey, The Juice, The Electric Company, and an Epic Run for a Record, will be given away to one lucky fan. It's all about the 1973 Buffalo Bills. Please check out the Sports History Network online for details on how you can win a free copy of my new book on the 1973 Buffalo Bill. Thanks a lot for listening in to today's episode, folks. Look forward to chatting with you again soon in the future. Take care. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey, hello, and how are you? And welcome to this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss some of the best moments, best names, and best memories in sports history. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and hope you're having a good day, good evening, or good night, wherever you're listening. And we're back again with another show, highlighting the best in sports history. And I appreciate you taking time out to give us a listen. And as a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast if you like what you hear here and check out our Twitter page at HistoricallySP2 for your daily dose of sports history. Now, in today's episode, we're going to talk to Row One Brand CEO Ray Durbin about his sports memorabilia company, as well as the best and most iconic uniforms in the history of college football. Also, we'll send a shout out to one of the most famous hockey arenas in all of North America that opened its doors 90 years ago. And as always, our top five. So sit back, turn up the volume because you tuned in to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is all about the lesser known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintales.com. Hello, welcome back to the show. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and you're listening live and direct to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. Once again, I'm Dana Augusta, and today we have a very special guest on board, and he is the he is part of Row One Brands, and his name is Ray Durbin, and we got the chance to talk a little bit before. He's a very interesting gentleman, very funny gentleman, and today... We're going to be talking about the best uniforms in the history of college football. And this past week was the 146th anniversary of the very first game that actually used uniforms going back to Harvard, Yale in 1875. And uh, we're going to talk about best uniforms, favorite uniforms, all of that throughout all of college. And my new friend, uh, Ray Durbin, great glad to have you aboard. Well, I'm glad to be meeting with you this morning. It should be a fun and interesting uh, program. Oh, yeah. Um, first off, let's talk about um, your favorite uniform. Now, you mentioned earlier that you went to the University of Oklahoma, and they have some of the most iconic uniforms in all of football. Talk about those a little bit. Well, uh, one thing I like about Oklahoma, that, that's one of the uniforms I, I like, and hopefully it's not uh, just due to me being uh, extremely biased. But uh, one of the things I like about Oklahoma, same with uh, Alabama, uh, same with Penn State, uh, is the fact that they're relatively uh, plain. Uh, I don't mean that in any derogatory 
sense, but you, you know, they're, they're simple designs. They, they have uh, good colors. Uh, I think Oklahoma's uh, red is maybe a little, little darker than um, uh, Alabama's, but you, you know, the red, the white, uh, they have a clean look to them. Now, uh, being a, a little bit critical, and uh, I don't mean to be too much, but uh, lately they've been going to some uh, alternate uniforms periodically. I, I don't know exactly who chooses those and when and why, but um, we, we joke around here a couple of years ago, Oklahoma went to a, a different alternate uniform that they just wear maybe twice a year. Uh, and it's almost like the Dallas Cowboys who for years and years and years, Dallas Cowboys wanted to wear white jerseys because they, they thought the uh, Navy blue jerseys and their home uniforms uh, was a bad luck for them or a jinx. And right. so um, that, you know, that may be an apocryphal story or just something, uh, mm -hmm. you know, people have, have come up with, but it, it took a life of its own. And so I know a lot of Dallas fans think if uh, they're in a playoff or something and Dallas is wearing a Navy, Navy blue jersey, they're in big trouble. But I, I had read that the reason Dallas, I get back to college here, and that the reason the Dallas Cowboys were wearing uh, white jerseys for their home games is because Tex Sham, who was, uh, was the uh, general manager or something at the time, decided he would like to have Cowboys wear the white jerseys at home so the fans would be able to see the other team's home jerseys when they come in, like Philadelphia would come in to play Dallas. Mm -hmm. They'd be having to wear the, the green because the Cowboys had already taken the white jerseys. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that was an interesting thing. And I guess over a period of time, it just developed that people thought, oh, those blue jerseys are a jinx. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, getting back, uh, I, I like the plain uh uniforms the, the appearance of alabama penn state uh but you know a lot of the uniforms look good once once you get used to them i think a big 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 part of it in terms of what jerseys you like and what uniforms you like is if you're a fan of that particular school and particularly if they do well that helps you know well, of course it does. To, uh, so you get used to them. you get used to them. but um the alternate uh, uniforms that Oklahoma has been wearing over the last couple of years. I, I don't really care for them. They get a little busy. Right. Uh, earlier in the year, they were playing a team and they wore those. And uh, traditionally, Oklahoma have like a red helmet or, uh, uh, you know, their, their color red. And then uh, a white OU on the side. And uh, uh, these uniforms have a white stripe down the middle. And then they have a mm -hmm. black stripe on it. And Black's not one of OU's colors. So, right. And then they have different patches on and different colors and all that. Mm. Uh, but anyway, those are my favorite uniforms. And uh, I also like Michigan's uniforms a lot. Michigan Wolverines, very, talking about iconic uniforms, that winged helmet. Yeah. Uh, that I, I understand they implemented that in about, I, I think, uh, is a guy's name Chrysler. Yeah. Uh, however you pronounce it, Chrysler, Chrysler. He uh -huh. came over from Princeton, I believe, and in around the late 30s, he adopted that helmet with the uh, wings on it, yellow and the three stripes. And wow. they've uh, they've had that ever since. Um, you can identify the Michigan helmet any place. You, you see that Navy with the yellow um, gold uh, markings on the helmet, you know exactly who, who you're playing. Yeah, I think the, the the legend is from, from that was that, you know, Coach Chrysler wanted that so his quarterbacks could see, easily identify who to throw the ball to, you know, because everybody had the same type of helmets back then and he wanted his helmets and his team kind of like to stand out so his quarterbacks could easily throw to whomever, you know, whoever he was trying to throw to, they'd be easily identified. Um yeah. You know, but, you know, I was going to ask you about how do you feel about alternate uniforms in general? Uh, as me, I'm just like you. I'm more of a traditionalist. You know, I'm in my I'm I'm somebody who's in my late in my late 40s, but I readily un, uh, identify with teams with the classic uniforms, you know, like 
Um, Michigan, you talked about Nebraska's another one that has, you right. know, has, has their uniform has stood the test of time. USC, UCLA, I mean, my wedding colors was UCLA's colors, you know, to be let you know, you know, the powder blue and the gold. Um, but, um, you know, those, those uniforms, I think, were iconic. But as far as, in my opinion, alternate uniforms, like, for example, Oregon, you know, that's a bit much. You know, right. I, I think that their uniforms are just a bit much. Um, but as far as like favorite uniforms, you know, UCLA is up there, you know, and, and talk about theirs, you know, talk about some of the other teams out there that, that, that catches your eye that you, that you like, you, you mentioned um, Michigan, what are some others? Well, I, I think you've named some Southern California, UCLA, they both have great, uh, uniforms, I think, um, Ohio State. Oh yeah. I'm not, I, I mean, I know. Different people have different opinions about it, mm-hmm. but I think the colors of scarlet and the, the silver really mm-hmm. looks good as a color combination. I'm not thrilled, and I know Woody Hayes started that, where they put the little Buckeye sticker on it, mm-hmm. on the helmet. I I think I would like it better without all the stickers on it. I know different people have different opinions about well, stickers. Well, I think, I think my, with my opinion is that sometimes it gets to be a bit much. You know, I mean, I don't, I mean, I like the helmet stickers, especially with some other teams, you know, and, and the reasons behind the helmet stickers. But I think that it, after, after a while, it gets to be a bit much, you know what I mean? Uh, right. Putting them on one side, you know, and, and stuff like that and keeping the other side just kind of like relatively clean with just the, the scarlet and the gray. And it's, you know, that's really cool. But at the same time, but it could get a little busy. It could be, get to be a bit much. I, I would be inclined if I was a player in Ohio, I'd be inclined to just swipe some stickers and put them on so the fans <laughs> think I'm a good player and the opponents would leave me alone. Uh, I don't know how long I could go through that without getting caught, but I think it'd be a great, great activity to try to swipe some stickers and put them all over a helmet. Um, I don't know. Some of... Um, some of the other teams, I think there, there's so many that, that really the uniforms, if you identify with the school, if you watch them long enough, uh, I think they look pretty good and look pretty clean. I, I was watching some of the Mississippi State uh, game last night against Texas A&M, and I like Mississippi State's version of that particular uniform. I know they have different uniforms for right. different purposes, but I like that color. I don't know what the official name of it is, sort of a, a royal blue yeah. rather than a dark navy. And and then the, uh, you know, the, how much were the red? And and I think that looks pretty good. And I think historically maybe they had a darker navy. Right. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're talking about with the light. Now, the light blue, the light blue helmet is very, I like you know, I really like the the light blue with Ole Miss written on the side. I think that is like really, really sharp. You know, and they do have the the darker blue, which is more traditional. When you see the the dark blue with Ole Miss, you think of Archie Manning. You think of you know that that group. You know, as a kid growing up in in the South, you know, I grew up in Louisiana and live here in Atlanta. And when you talk about Ole Miss, you think about that dark blue, but the light blue that just seems like more akin to Mississippi. They just seemed yeah. like it. Um, and speaking of Louisiana, you, I mean, you, we were talking earlier about the um, Dallas Cowboys wearing white at home. LSU is another team that wears white at home predominantly and with them playing at night. Now you talk about the Cowboys having some bad luck wearing blue supposedly, but when you talk about LSU football, Wearing white at night is a tradition, you know, and there's it, it some kind of mis- mystique about it. You right. Know? And I'm trying to think, who was that really? Oh, Billy Cannon. Yes. Wasn't that the same Billy Cannon? It was a halfback there in the, the 50s. Um, 1959 Heisman Trophy winner. Did he, he did win a Heisman Trophy, yeah. Um, but, but I remember a friend growing up, a friend of mine, even though we're up in Michigan, his favorite team was uh, Mississippi at, at that time because, uh, well, he liked Mississippi, but he also liked LSU. Didn't LSU have a 
what they call the Chinese bandits. Yes, that's right. The Chinese bandits. Which was bandit. a couple of, uh, I, I guess, defensive team or something. Yeah, the defensive line. Defensive players, or maybe there's a second string or something. But yeah, they're, 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 actually, it was like the really, second string, like the, maybe, yeah. like the second string or third string, I believe it was. And they would come in, you know, in certain situations and just cause havoc. Yeah, right. I don't know. I don't know if you could get by calling him that at this. No, I don't think you could get away with that. Now. And then, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, LSU has good uniforms too. I, I mean, a lot of the teams do, and and I'm like you. The teams that I don't like their uniforms are ones that I think get too cluttered. Yeah. Uh, I remember. I'll pick on Kansas just for a minute here. Oh, um, okay. uh, Kansas. Historically, traditionally, uh, they they had some pretty nice looking uniforms. I think uh, I remember being able to see Gail Sayers play when I think he was at Kansas. Really good. I mean, excellent, excellent. Even in college, you know, elusive, run, but yeah, relatively plain uh, uniform. I watched a little bit of a Kansas game about a week ago, and they. I think so much of it is what looks good and mm-hmm. what's your purpose and what's your reason of doing it. But they had a, a humongous Jayhawk on the side of their helmet. I've seen those, yes. That, that's just kind of like a silly putty or blob or something. That, uh-huh. uh just didn't look good on the helmet. Now, last night I was watching a little bit. I, I guess you heard Kansas upset Texas. Yes, I did. Time. I did hear that. Went into overtime and, and Kansas went for two and won by one point. But I, mm-hmm. I looked. I caught a little bit of that game and on the internet yesterday and their helmets looked better. They were white. And I think yeah. the, the Jayhawk was a little smaller on the side of the helmet. Didn't look mm-hmm. bad. But, uh, right. Uh, I'm, you know, I would like it if the schools would just pick one or two uniforms and make an alternate uniform and stick with it. And I came back to Oregon. I guess a lot of that is due to Nike. Yeah. That, absolutely. Uh, they, they figure design more uniforms and sell more jerseys and come up with all sorts of different items that a fan just has to have or, you know, they wouldn't be able to survive. But those get a little busy at times. Now, I've seen Oregon uniforms, even with the new Nike uniforms, if they keep them relatively plain, they look pretty pretty sharp. Yeah. You know, yellow's, yellow's a good color and mm-hmm. uh, at least the Oregon color yellow. And I was, I was looking at some of our some of the items on our website, and there's a oh, an Oregon duck uh, program. Uh, I want to see. I don't know if I have a date here, but uh, I looked at that. and I thought hey, that that looks pretty good. It was uh, I think 1986. It was from the 1986 program, and it just showed an Oregon player. Now that's getting quite a while ago, 1986, mm-hmm. but it really looked good. It looked balanced. They had a, a pretty color green. Jersey almost looked like the Green Bay Packers, except yeah, I mean those uh, as old Oregon, more yellow. Yeah, those classic Oregon uniforms from like the eighties and seventies, eighties um, were really sharp. I mean, because I think you they had the, the green jersey with the if I'm not mistaken, they had the yellow numbers, yellow pants, the yellow helmet with O U with U O on the side. Right. Um, in block in block lettering, I mean, it, it was really sharp. You know, and that's what I you know remember watching. You know, when I was a kid, you know, watching those Oregon games, you know, watching Pac-10 games, it was Pac-10 back then. And, um, you know, watching those guys, you know, my favorite, all-time favorite player, I'm a Chargers fan, and my all-time favorite player is Dan Fouts. And when he was at Oregon, those uniforms were relatively the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I I think you're talking about Fouts and, and not shifting over pro balls, but uh, you know, San Diego Chargers have always had an iconic uniform, too. I'm a Chargers fan, so I mean, you talk, you preach okay. to the choir over here. Okay. If, <laughs> if, if, they can, if they can stay put for a, a few more decades. I, I, I'd heard they started out in L.A. and then they went down to San Diego for years and years and years. Yep. And just recently came back to L.A., but I, I didn't know that until recently. I I've heard it at one time, but I forgot about that they actually played a year or two or however long it was. So in, one year they played one year in the Coliseum, sharing it with the Rams, and then they oh, decided okay. they they couldn't survive in Los Angeles, so they decided to move further down south to San Diego. 
And uh, speaking of San Diego, I think that one of the underground best-looking uniforms is San Diego State's black with the red. They still have that kind of, but they called it the look. And they always wear the black jerseys and black pants. That's like one of the few times that I like a uniform where the where the pants and the and the jersey are the same color. And I'm mm. not too wild about that, but with theirs, with the black pants, the black um, the black jersey, and the red helmet, the plain yeah. red helmet, yeah. that goes back to when Sid Gilman was the coach at San Diego State, and they've kind of kept that throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Did you ever? Did you ever live on the West Coast or just? No, I never lived on the West Coast, but I just have a just a, I'm just drawn to the West Coast. I've, I'm a hell of a kid from the South, but uh, I'm just, I, but for some reason, I've always been drawn to the West Coast. I, I didn't know whether you had lived in San Diego for a while. I, I neither. I've, I've been to California a number of times, never to San Diego, and I'd like to go there because I heard it's just a great climate, just mm-hmm. a, a fantastic uh, climate there. Um, I'm with you on a lot of these things. I, I was going to say, uh, I'm not crazy about, uh, solid uniforms in general. Uh, whether I was, I saw a team, uh, while back, it remained, uh, remind me of, uh, when I was a kid, we used to have these electronic football sets. I don't know if you've ever seen them where they were metal surface and they vibrate and then they, it would vibrate. And yeah. Fires it. We are, used to always uh, uh, have uh, little figures, football figures that were in yellow yeah. and some in red. And when I the other day, I saw a team that was all red, red helmet, red jerseys, red pants. And I thought, that looks like my old uh, <laughs> vibrating uh, <laughs> electronic football team. Right. But, uh, but I normally like the contest. Another thing that I think is really interesting, I've, I've seen some old colored films and, I, and I'm thinking about a, a game I saw one time uh, a film of a early 50s game between Texas and Oklahoma and what was interesting about it uh, Texas had on orange jerseys and Oklahoma had on red jerseys Ooh, that and I've seen that happen easy. before and I kind of like it and mm. the reason they went away from that as I understand it well first of all you, they as I understand, they adopt this rule of normally having a, a visiting teams wear a light jersey or a white jersey, and so because if you had two teams that were both had primarily colors of navy, mm-hmm. if you don't have an arrangement ahead of time, an agreement ahead of time, they both want to wear the same color. But I also heard a lot of that had to do with um, black and white television when it was first invented, uh-huh. because the fans looking there on on TV like that game I was telling you about. Uh, I didn't see it on TV. I just saw an old film of it uh, wow. where they had the red and the orange jerseys on television. It'd be hard to keep track of who's who. But if you're actually there on a game, if, if, if you're in the stands or if you're a player, you wouldn't have any trouble unless you're a colorblind. <laughs> between like a dark green jersey and our team has a dark red jersey and there wouldn't be any problem. Yeah. But on, on a black and white television set, there would be a problem. So. Yeah, all those I mean, things are kind of interesting. How technology affects mm-hmm. what you can do with uh, uniform designs, everything. Now it's interesting you said that because um, I know I'm like I said I'm a I'm a fan of the West Coast sports and West Coast football and stuff like that. When UCLA and USC play for the Battle of the Victory Bell, when they play each other during the year, and you know at the end of the year, you notice that both teams wear their home uniforms. You know, USC will wear their traditional red cardinal uniform with the with the with the yellow stripes over the shoulder, and UCLA right. will wear that beautiful powder blue, and it just seems so you know so beautiful whether they're playing at the Coliseum or they're playing at the Rose Bowl. They just and mm-hmm. that deep green grass at the Rose Bowl. You know, you see would see that, and it just it just pops off your screen. Whenever you see that, and I think that's maybe one of the few instances where both teams play in their play in their home uniforms when they play each other. Because they're both they, playing, they're relatively playing at home. They're both in California. They're both in Los yeah. Angeles. 
or Pasadena, wherever. But that's the only time you will really see that. And do they still do that? Yeah, they do. They, they, it's the, I, I remember yeah, first. I, I, I remember when. Well, I remember seeing. I when I remember seeing footage of when USC played UCLA when they had OJ Simpson and both was mm-hmm. like in the top mm-hmm. 10 and playing for the national title. Right. And both of them were playing in their home uniforms. You know, you see OJ Simpson running with the, you know, wearing the red and Gary Beban was the quarterback for UCLA. Right. And he was wearing the, 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 the light blue. And it just seemed, you know, it's like, wow, they both, they both playing at home, they're playing in their home uniforms and the game was at the Coliseum. And it, it was like really, really interesting to see. Right. Um, I think who was that announcer? She, uh, television announcer. His name is not coming. Keith Jackson. Yeah, I read where he said that was the best game he had ever seen in person. Mm-hmm. Talking about that game, that that was a game where I think uh, USC was behind and uh, OJ Simpson got the ball and. Ran, I, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but my understanding is that uh, UCLA linebackers, because uh, USC was behind, uh-huh. and I think the linebackers were kind of crowded or, or dropping off because they thought uh, Beban was not Beban, he wasn't a the quarterback. They, they thought the USC quarterback was going to have to throw the ball. Right. And instead, they he noticed that the linebackers were going back or something to defend against the pass. And I think that was maybe a checkoff play. I, I don't know. Maybe the coach called it. But anyway, then OJ ran for a while, like 70 yards or more. Yeah. I scored a winning touchdown. So, uh, yeah, I I probably uh, – I, I don't think um, – I remember seeing that game on television or not. But I, I've certainly heard about it and seen films of it. Uh he was a, a fairly good back. I've heard of O.J. Simpson. <laughs> you know, it's surprising. He's one of the one of the few players that really, really, shouldn't say one of the few, but uh, a Heisman Trophy winner that really, really lived up to, to his height. billing when he went into the pros. You're right. Uh, you know, another guy, Barry Sanders, and uh-huh. and that's funny about the Heisman. There's been some players who've been extremely successful, and then others is kind of tank. Uh, yeah. Yeah, another another team that I think I like their their uniforms. You know, coming back toward this way to toward the south is Florida State. Now their uniforms have been is one of the most iconic as well. People don't really talk about how nice and beautiful those uniforms are, but in my opinion, they're one of my personal favorites, and that's uh, the Seminoles of Florida State. Right. Well, they have that. I don't know what they call it, but they have that pattern. Around the neck of the jersey, which is yeah. kind of unique. Uh, there are a few other teams that adopt that periodically. Yeah, um, for one of their all alternate jerseys, but that's one of the few teams I'm aware of that have that. You know, historically, the the yeah. design, the pattern, whatever that represents, sort of an abstract. Or, or do you know what? What is that? Is that arrowheads or something on there? Well, I'm not. I have to really take a look at it, like a deep look at it. But you know, they got the 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 famous spear on the sides of the helmet, and then they got the hatchets. You know, like what you know, basically the same thing as you know the, the Buckeyes for Ohio State. They got the hatchets on the helmet. You know, for you know whenever you do something good on on the field or whatever. Um, I think I've always liked those, and you know, and then you got one of the most, the most iconic, in my opinion, in all of football. And it, they, they're just plain as plain can be. And I'll give you two of them, actually. Penn State that you mentioned earlier and Notre Dame. Yeah, we hadn't talked about Notre Dame. Yeah, that's a <laughs> classic uniform. And and that's funny uh, you mentioned that. Um, you know, periodically they break out the green jerseys. I, I don't yes. know the last time they, they've done that, but. That that's good luck, but the navy and the gold looks very good, and they're not all cluttered up. Uh, when I I saw it, um, either a yearbook or cover or something a Notre Dame team. Oh, I, I I don't know. It's on on their website. I don't know the year of it, but 
they have a photo of the Notre Dame line kind of uh-huh. lining up against the opposing team. And they actually have a shamrock on her helmet. And I, I've I'm seen that. Crazy yes. about, like, I, I'm not crazy about that for every, but I think one year they just wore the shamrock on the side of their helmet. Right. Maybe more than one year, but uh, uh, I thought that made it a little clunky looking at the time. But uh, yeah, now that uh, now there was a rumor floating around that I read somewhere that Lou Holtz, when he was coaching there, didn't like the plain helmet. He wanted something on the helmet. He was thinking about putting the shamrock back on the helmet, and then you know the the power that be at Notre Dame was like, no, you're not doing that. You know, you're sticking with the the, the plain helmet. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it, it, it just you know, it, it, it works for them. Um, Penn State is another one. Now, every now and then, like, you know, when Capaletti won the Heisman in 73, they had numbers on the sides of the helmets. And he bring that back every now and then. But right. just having the plain white helmet and the the single stripe down the center, you know, my wife, you know, we saw that one time. And he, she said it looked like a middle school team. But, but that's just so iconic and that just represents Penn State. It just represents that area of the country was like blue collar, no nonsense. This is who we are. Deal with it type of attitude that Penn State have always had, you know, going, you know, with Joe Paterno and, 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 and going forward now with James Franklin. I saw something the other day, a couple of weeks ago. And I thought, what? Because uh, Penn State, uh, I saw on their website or someplace, had a little haiku or a little short poem. And one of the things there, I don't remember it, but it's like, White helmet, white pants, da da da, black shoes. Okay. Yeah. And the other day, though, I was watching television, they had on white shoes. <laughs> that was a couple of weeks ago, but I, I don't think they do that very often. I don't know what the what the reason for that was. I was like, what is going on here? They had a, on white shoes for, a, um, mm-hmm. I don't know, it was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think against Michigan. Then they play Michigan Saturday. I think they went back to their black. Black yeah. shoes in that game. Um, okay, another team. This is going way back when, when I was a kid. I, I've told this story before. I think the first time I remember watching football on television, it was old RCA, <laughs> like a 12-inch TV set with rabbit ears. And I had to be like in the first grade or second grade, and I saw this game on TV. And it was Princeton playing some team in the Ivy League, and it was snowy. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I noticed Princeton, and, and after that, I said, I got to have one of those. I have got to get a sweater like that. The Princeton uniforms had the, the those uh, orange stripes. tiger stripes going down the sleeves, you know, like little yeah. circles around that represent the, the, the tiger stripes, and uh, I like that. So I, I figured – Man, I need to go to Princeton. Unfortunately, the grades and the, the money and everything. <laughs> that wasn't in a carpet. And I only had that. I only had that fantasy for about a year or two anyway. But uh, no, there's, there's, uh, I, I think the uniforms, I, I, my preference, I guess, to kind of summarize that. I, I like things that are relatively plain. Right. I, I like a certain amount of consistency uh, to, where you can identify with the, the uniform and that uniform represents something. Yeah. I think when you, when you have about 10 different styles of uniforms and maybe even more and you alternate and everything, it's, it's fun. And it may be fun for the players. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. But it's hard to build up an identity with that particular uniform. And yeah, some so work and some don't. That's the other thing. When you have a whole bunch of alternative uniforms, some of them work and some of them some don't. don't. You know, if you don't have your feathers, just going the right way on the Oregon Ducks. Right. It might look a little silly. But uh, anyway, oh, one thing you're talking about, Penn State, and I did not know this uh-huh. uh, until just recently. I, I read that Penn State's initial colors for a couple of years, three, two, three years. Have you heard this story before? I think I think I know and, where you're going with this. I think Penn I've heard this story. State's colors were a pink Pink. Sort of shade or some yeah. sort of shade, it's right? Like a like pinkish, that. purplish color, and, for like and about a black. year or two, and black. And I, I was trying to envision because I don't have any color photographs of that, but I'm thinking, good and plenty candy. I mean, what does that look like? <laughs> <laughs> but what's funny, I've heard different stories about it. I've, I've read different, different 
stories about it. Uh, looked up some information at Penn State, one of their articles or something, and they they said the, the team voted for it, and that they had these colors, and over a period of time, the pink, the sunlight caused that to to uh, change to white. Yeah. And the black faded, and that was more like a blue. So they voted after about three years. Let's just have white navy, you know. Type yeah. Thing. But I I read another source that I, I'm more inclined to believe this. They said that the team colors were chosen by three people. There was a sophomore, and a junior, and a senior at college, and they're the ones that picked the colors. Right. And uh, I've I've heard different stories about that, but then again, they they change colors over time. Probably the dyes and everything back then weren't as good as they are now. Mm-hmm. But uh, I I read that some of the opposing players made fun of their uniforms, <laughs> so they decided they better change. Right. Um, but that's interesting. That's another thing. It, just the color combinations. You you know, I I I heard a while back teams like to wear a darker color your black or dark red or something because mm-hmm. they look meaner they look right you don't see a lot of people wearing pink out there or a real pale yellow or something like that yeah so um well, yesterday it, i was watching um tennessee and georgia and tennessee came in in all black with the yeah, it didn't look right to me it really didn't now the black accents on the helmets the the typically the traditional white tennessee helmet with the orange tee now that one was outlined in black now that actually looked pretty good you know yeah. in my opinion but it didn't look like tennessee yeah, you know you know tennessee you think of tennessee orange you know, the right. orange, you know, the orange jersey with the white pants and the orange tee on the side with the white helmets and stuff. That's Tennessee. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But if you had the black accents on it, then okay, maybe I could work with that. But the all black, that just didn't look right. Yeah, yeah, it didn't. I don't know what prompted them to do that either. I mean, I don't really know. But uh I would like they're changing subjects so I would like to see Tennessee get back to where they're really yeah. competitive in the SEC. Uh, now, they, they're, they're starting, starting to get there. I think they, 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 they're really trying to get back to where yeah. they were. Obviously, yeah. they are. But Tennessee, when you think of SEC football, you think of Alabama, you think of Georgia, you think of LSU. You also think of Tennessee. Yes. You know? Yeah, exactly. It just seemed like the world would be right if Tennessee was right there in the mix for SEC title. The world would just seem right, you know. Yeah. Well, I think their offense is doing pretty pretty good this year with, yeah. with Heupel, but they probably – it's like Oklahoma. Our defense has just been bad, bad for a long, long, long time, you know. Yeah. It's hard to win a game if you don't have a balanced uh, offense and defense. It's, it's pretty tough. Now, Ray, before we wrap things up here, I want you to talk more about Row One Brands. Talk about you know the company that you that you're running. I've, I've looked on your site and I like a lot of the stuff that's on there. And um, you tell us about how you started it and um, what's all in it. Okay, well, currently uh, Row One Brand is is a company that was formed to take historic vintage. Uh, sports memorabilia, whether it's programs, tickets, actually we started out with tickets, uh, game tickets from college. And uh, when you blow those up, they really make interesting uh, art for the wall. Uh, and then a lot of these uh, images on old tickets and old programs and even in the area of baseball and other sports like uh, uh, scorecards for baseball. They have a lot of great historic art, um, whether it's St. Louis Cardinals or Brooklyn Dodgers or you know, Los Angeles Dodgers, just New York Yankees. A lot of really, really good art on these old programs, old yearbooks, uh, media guides. We take all that and uh, make sure it's not copyrighted. And then we uh, use them to make various products. Uh, we start out with uh, canvas art, uh, and we've just expanded from there. We have uh, apparel, 
uh, talking about vintage clothing. Uh, various companies do that, but we actually have real vintage uh, artwork on uh, hoodies, sweatshirts, T-shirts, uh, shower curtains, some of the products, uh, phone cases, uh, a couple of products we've added recently. And, of course, we're expanding, expanding, expanding. Uh, our coasters, Birchwood coasters, which are really nice because they're in a, a square shape and they okay. lend themselves to uh, uh, art uh, on the wood. You see their wood grain coming through some of the, the graphics. And uh, another product we have uh, added recently are watches and wow. the watch faces. Uh, so we, we don't have a tremendous number up right now, probably 30, uh, maybe a few more than that, but we're adding them daily. And they make excellent uh, watches, some old historical uh, images. Um, so we we try to offer a lot of different products and, and it's, it's honoring the artists who created this as well as yeah. the history and the teams. Um, and so that, that's what we're trying to do is preserve the history of uh, football, baseball, basketball, you know, Indy 500, uh, some Indy 500 tickets really look sharp too on either wall art or on um, T-shirts, whatever. So that's what we're all about. Uh, and we're trying to expand more and more and more products all the time. We currently have about... Uh, one one part of it is just art, traditional art, prints, metal signs, uh, wooden signs, um, and we have about 6,200 different images up. And then each one of those is multiplied by the fact that you take a particular image out of the 6,200, uh -huh. and you either get in a print, canvas, on wood, metal sign, acrylic. So that's what we're all about. And then uh, we're also expanding area, other areas where we probably have about 1,400 right now images over on the products like phone cases, uh, T-shirts, uh, hoodies, uh, uh, shower curtains, towels. Uh, an item that really, really looks good are uh, bath towels and uh, also beach towels. Okay. Because when you think about a beach towel, it's a rectangular. It's it's almost a uh, identical shape of a ticket. ticket right. And some of these old tickets that have really, really good graphics on them. And what and and it's interesting historical information too. Of course the price inflation, you know, that adjusts for everything, but right. it's kind of interesting to look at an old like Super Bowl ticket or something for fifteen dollars. My little heart starts to melt. Fifteen dollars to go to the Super Bowl. Right. <laughs> wow. Uh and and some of these old college games, you know, it'd be like two dollars and fifty cents. I remember one, and I, I'll get off that, but uh, it's a Southern Cal season ticket, for example. You get the whole season ticket for like fifteen bucks or wow, man! Bucks. <laughs> hey, at that price, you can even afford to get a, a thing of popcorn. Right, 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 exactly. <laughs> Well, Mr. Ray, I really, really glad to have you on today. Um, I, re I mean, you brought a wealth of knowledge and a, just a, you know, you're just a warm, warm man. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on today. Well, I, I like the idea of uh, going sitting around either having a cup of coffee or a drink or something, a beer, and mm -hmm. just talking about sports. Because I, I was amazed at how much you know about this stuff. It's just, how does he know about that? <laughs> I get that all the time. It's a passion. I love it. Yeah. But I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the company this today. And um, I really wish you all the best with the company and everything. And I'm going to be checking out that website. Just get, for the, everybody out there, just uh, plug your website. What's, what's, the, what's the website? Uh, and, um, and uh, quick, quick way to get to the website is rowonebrand.com. Rowonebrand.com. .com. All right. Well, Mr. Ray, I really appreciate the time, man. And uh, thank you for coming on. Okay. You have a great weekend and uh, and uh, happy watching football watching. All right. You know, you know I'm doing that today. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. All right.
Welcome back to the show. And before we get on with the rest of the program, one sign that we're growing here to Historically Speaking Sports and the Sports History Network is now we have a sponsor, and that is newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a serious sports fan like myself. And if you are into sports history, you really do need to check out newspapers.com. At newspapers.com, you can get access to over 640 million pages worth of news from the United States, Canada, England, and so on. Get one free subscription to newspapers.com by visiting sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. And with a paid subscription, you will also be helping to support the production of this and other Sports History Network shows. That's sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. Also, check out our Twitter feed at historicallysp2 for your daily dose of sports history. Also, you could drop us a line or two at our email at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you hear this podcast so you can get new episodes whenever they come out. And now, back to the program. And if you are new to the program, this is what we call our top five. The top five events in the annals of sports history that celebrated anniversaries this past week. Today, we are highlighting the events that took place between the dates of November the 7th through November the 13th. Number five, Tom Dempsey kicks a 63-yard field goal for the New Orleans Saints. Up until then, the Saints were victorious in Super Bowl 44, which was their, the high point of their existence. Until then, the high point was this one, right at the top, the date November 8th of 1970 at Tulane Stadium in New Orleans. On that afternoon, the Saints were hosting the Detroit Lions. With less than 30 seconds remaining, Lions kicker Arrow Mann connected on a field goal to give Detroit a slim 17-16 lead. Yet after a good return and a Billy Kilmer completion to Al Dodd, placed the ball on the Saints 44-yard line with precious little time remaining. Saints head coach J.D. Roberts, who actually replaced Tom Fears as head coach earlier that week, called on Dempsey to try to win from 63 yards out, which would be an NFL record. The result, the Jackie Burke snap and Joe Scarpardi hold was perfect and Dempsey his kick sailed barely clearing the crossbar for one of only two wins that season for the Saints, giving the Saints a 19-17 win over the Lions and one of the greatest moments not only in NFL history, but in Saints history and Saints fandom all around the world. Number four, Kennesaw Mountain Landis elected first commissioner of baseball. In the wake of the Black Sox scandal of 1919, Team owners of the American and National League was looking for someone to rule over baseball and guide baseball in its own self-interest. On November the 12th, 1920, Major League Baseball elected its first commissioner, a former U.S. federal judge named Kennesaw Mountain Landis. He is remembered for his handling of the scandal that rocked baseball to its core following the 1919 World Series, which he expelled eight members of the Chicago White Sox for organized baseball for conspiring to lose the World Series in, for the benefit of gamblers and repeatedly refused their reinstatement requests. His firm actions and iron ruled over in his iron rule over baseball. He did this until his death in, in 1944 and is credited with restoring the public's trust in the national pastime. Number three, Houston Astros pitcher Mike Fires reveals the team stole signs from 2015 through 2017. On November 12, 2019, Ken Rosenthal and Evan Drellich wrote an article in The Athletic detailing allegations that the Astros had used cameras to engage in potentially illicit sign stealing against opponents, relying on allegations from former Astros pitcher Mike Fires as a public source and other allegations from unnamed sources. The Astros was alleged to have used scouts watching catcher signs in real time behind the dugout at Minute Maid Park to crack the signs by banging a trash can loudly to indicate what pitch was coming. The scandal rippled through baseball through the baseball world as videos that appeared to clearly show the scheme were published. Further allegations regarding other means of relaying signs such as whistling, surface 
and in subsequent weeks. Major League Baseball and Commissioner Rob Manfred announced a sweeping investigation into the allegations. On January 13th of 2020, Major League Baseball announced that its investigation found that the Astros did use cameras and video monitors to steal signs of opposing catchers and signal to hitters throughout the 2017 regular season and postseason, and at least part of the 2018 season. The investigation found no evidence of signs stealing in their pennant-winning 2019 season. The report said that Alex Cora, then the Astros' bench coach, Carlos Beltran and other unnamed players were involved in developing the scheme. It is said that A.J. Hinch, Astros manager, neither devised the banging scheme nor participated in it, but did not stop it or tell Cora that he disapproved of it. Manfred also announced that manager A.J. Hinch and general manager Jeff Ludenow were suspended for one year and the team would be fined $5 million, the maximum under Major League Baseball rules, and the team would lose its top two draft picks both in 2020 and in 2021. Number two, boxer Duke Kim dies after a loss to Ray Boom Boom Mancini. On November the 13th, 1982, South Korean lightweight contender Duke Kim was taking on lightweight champion Ray Boom Boom Mancini at an outdoor arena at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. He was carrying a 17-1-1 professional record into the fight after going 29-4 in amateur ranks heading into his first fight on American soil. Kim was lightly regarded by the boxing establishment but not by Ray Mancini who believed the fight would be a quote-unquote war. Kim struggled to lose weight in the days prior to the bout so that he could weigh in under the lightweight's 135-pound limit. They went toe-to-toe for a good portion of the bout to the point that Mancini briefly considered quitting. Kim tore Mancini's left ear and puffed up his left eye, and Mancini's left hand swelled twice his normal size. After the fight, Mancini's left eye would be completely closed. However, by the later rounds, Mancini began to dominate, landing more punches than Kim. In the beginning of the 13th round, Mancini charged Kim with a flurry of 39 punches, but had little effect. But when the fighters came out for the 14th round, Mancini charged forward and hit Kim with the right. Kim reeled back, Mancini missed with the left, and then Mancini hit Kim with another hard right hand. Kim went flying into the ropes and his head hitting the canvas. Kim managed to rise unsteadily to his feet, but, Richard, but referee Richard Green stopped the fight and Mancini was declared the winner by technical knockout 19 seconds into the 14th round. Minutes after the fight was over, Kim collapsed into a coma and was removed from the Caesars Palace Arena on a stretcher and was taken to Desert Springs Hospital. At the hospital, he was found to have a subdural hematoma consisting of 100 cubic centimeters of blood in his skull. Emergency brain surgery was performed at the hospital to try to save him, but Kim died five days after the bout on November the 18th. The neurosurgeon said it was caused by one punch. The week after, Sports Illustrated published a photo of the fight on his, color, on, on his cover under the heading, Tragedy in the Ring. The profile of the incident was heightened by the fight having been televised live on CBS in the United States. The World Boxing Council, the WBC, which was not the fight-sanctioning organization, announced during its annual convention of 1982 that many rules concerning the fighters' medical care before fights needed to be changed. One of the most significant was the WBC's reduction of title fights from 15 rounds to 12. The World Boxing Association, the International Boxing Federation, followed the WBC's lead in 1987. And when the World Boxing Organization was formed in 1988, it immediately began operating with 12-round world championship bouts. And the number one event this past week in sports history, Magic Johnson announces he contracted HIV, HIV virus and retires from the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, there are a few sports stories that take place which you can recall where you were when you first heard it. In this case, I was a freshman at Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, when a friend of mine told me that Magic had contracted HIV and was retiring from the Lakers. The season before, Magic had led the Lakers to the finals against, the, against Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Yet after a physical before the start of the 1991-92 NBA season, Johnson discovered that he had tested positive for HIV. 
and in a press conference held on November the 7th, 1991, Johnson made a public announcement that he would retire immediately. He stated that his wife Cookie and their unborn child did not have HIV, and he did not, and he did, would dedicate his life to battle this deadly disease. Johnson's HIV announcement became a major sports story in the United States, and in 2004, he was named as ESPN's seventh most memorable moment of the past 25 years. Many articles praised Johnson as a hero, and then U.S. President George H.W. Bush said, quote, For me, Magic is a hero, a hero for everyone who loves sports, unquote. Despite his retirement, Johnson was voted by fans as a starter in the 1992 NBA All-Star Game at Orlando, and it became one of the most memorable moments in NBA All-Star history. Johnson led the West to a 153-113 win and was crowned All-Star Most Valuable Player after recording 25 points, 9 assists, and 5 rebounds. The game, was, the game ended after he made a last-minute three-pointer, and both players from both teams ran on the court to congratulate Johnson. Johnson was chosen to compete in Barcelona in the 1992 Summer Olympics and for the U.S. national team dubbed the Dream Team because of the NBA stars on the roster. The Dream Team, which along with Johnson included fellow Hall of Famers such as Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, and Larry Bird, and was considered unbeatable. After qualifying for the Olympics with a gold medal at the 1992 Tournament of the Americas, the Dream Team dominated the Olympic competition winning the gold medal with an 8-0 record, beating their opponents by an average of 43 points a game. Johnson averaged 8 points per game during the Olympics and his 5.5 assists was second on the team. Johnson played infrequently because of knee problems, but he received standing ovations from the crowd and used the opportunity to inspire HIV-positive people. And that wraps up this week's Top 5 here on the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And coming up next, this episode shout out. And in this episode, we're going to send a shout out to a classic sports arena north of the border that is celebrating its 90th birthday. An arena that is simply known as the Shrine. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to the show and in this final segment of the program we call it the shout out and this week we're going to send a shout out to one of the classic sports arenas in all of North America. It goes by several nicknames, the Carlton Street Cash Box, the Church of Hockey and simply the Shrine. I'm talking of course about Toronto's Maple Leaf Gardens. 
that opened 90 years ago this past week in downtown Toronto, located on the corner of Carlton and Church Streets. It is considered one of the cathedrals of hockey, and it was home to the Toronto Maple Leafs of the National Hockey League from 1931 to 1999. The Leafs won the Stanley Cup 11 times from 1932 to 1967 while playing at the Gardens. In the first, it was also the site of the first NHL All-Star game, albeit an unofficial one, which was held at the Gardens in 1934 as a benefit for Leafs forward Ace Bailey, who has suffered a career-ending head injury. The first official annual National Hockey League All-Star game was also held at Maple Leaf Gardens in 1947. It was home to the Toronto Huskies 1946-1947 in their single season in the Basketball Association of America, which was a forerunner to the NBA. Speaking of the NBA, the NBA's Buffalo Braves, now known as the Los Angeles Clippers, played a total of 16 regular season games at Maple Leaf Gardens from 1971 to 1975. And the NBA's Toronto Raptors also played six games at the Gardens from 97 to 99, mostly when Sky Dome was unavailable. Before Maple Leaf Gardens, Toronto's hockey team played at an arena called Arena Gardens on Mutual Street and was built in 1912 and seated just 7,500 fans. By 1930, Leafs managing director Con Smythe decided the arena was too small and he wanted to build a new one, much larger and more impressive. After considering various sites, the site at the corner of Carlton and Church Street was purchased from the T. Eaton Company Limited for $350,000, which is $5.85 million in today's money, a price set to be $150,000 below market value. The new 12,473-seat arena, including 14,550, it actually includes with standing room, was uh, designed by the architectural firm of Ross and McDonald. From there, Maple Leaf Gardens became the mecca of hockey for English-speaking Canada. The arena actually still is still in use after the Maple Leafs moved on into the new modern Air Canada Centre. Ryerson University of Toronto still uses the arena to stage hockey games and other events. One of the most, quote, one of the most renowned shrines in the history of hockey, the largest arena in the country when it was built, and one of the country's foremost venues for large-scale sporting events, such as boxing matches and track meets, and non-sporting events such as concerts, rallies, and political gatherings. Religious services, opera, the garden holds a special place in the country's popular culture. Here, Canadians welcome their wide range of cultural icons from the Beatles to the Metropolitan Opera to Tim Buck to Team Canada versus Soviets, from Winston Churchill to Muhammad Ali George Chevalier fight. And that was stated by the Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada in June of 2006. That is this week's shout out, sending one out to the great, great arena north of the border known as Maple Leaf Gardens. I'm glad you had the opportunity to listen to our program this week and stay tuned for another one coming up. And please don't forget to subscribe if you like what you hear here. I'm Dana Augusta, your host. And until next time, have a great week, sports fans. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. 
And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.